Good morning. It is great to have you with us this morning. I am excited to get back into the story of Joseph. Uh, to begin with, uh, let me tell you a story about when I graduated from college. I was going on job interviews, and so one of these interviews was in San Francisco with a newspaper there. I don't think they had an opening, but I was just doing this informational thing, trying to get information, and this editor was happy to meet with me. So I wanted to make a good impression. I wanted to make sure that I got there on time. So I got into my, uh, the only suit that I owned, and it was this awful-looking powder blue thing. Think 1979. No, you don't want to think 1979. It was really not a pretty sight. So I got there really early. And in fact, there, I got there way too early, about an hour early. So I had about an hour to kill. So I walked into this uh, pub. There was a baseball game on. The Giants were playing. So I sat down to watch the baseball game, and I was very excited about this to kill time. But there was a fellow who was next to me who decided that this young fellow in this powder blue suit needed a little bit of advice. So he said to me, he starts talking about himself, and he says, I'm 77 years old, and all my friends are dead. He acted as if it was, he was boasting about the fact that all his friends were dead, and I'm a survivor. That's what I've done in life. I'm a survivor. And then he turns to me, and he pushes his finger right up next to me, and he says, be a survivor. So that was his advice to me, be a survivor. Now, I was pretty sure at that point in my life, at the age of 21, that I wanted to be more than just a survivor in life, and nothing in the ensuing years has put me off that notion. In fact, uh, these days I am more interested in faith than survival. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to meet a, a family today, or get caught up with a family um, that is teetering on the brink of survival. And this family needs to take measures in order to make sure that it survives. However, as we pay close attention to the narrative in this chapter, chapter 42, and moving forward, we are going to see that God is concerned with way more than simply mere survival. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 42 today in the story of Joseph. And uh, before we jump into the story, uh, because uh, we've been away for it from, for a little while, let's do a little recapitulation. Actually, let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates humanity. Humanity falls. Humanity rejects Him. Therefore, God says, I want to restore humanity. I want to restore creation. I'm going to do it through this particular man and his family. That man's name is Abraham. But Abraham's family doesn't look so great. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has a mess of sons, including Joseph. This is a fractured family. And we, and we asked ourselves, how is anything good going to come of this? How is God going to restore humanity to himself through this family? And then we get into the story of Joseph, and Joseph is the favored son of Jacob. And... Uh, the other brothers don't take kindly to this, and so they decide that they want to get rid of Joseph. They throw him into a pit, and then they sell him into slavery, and these people take, him, take Joseph then to Egypt. The brothers then tell their father, more or less, by the way they've acted, that Joseph, Joseph has been killed. So they lie to their father. Jo uh, Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead. He is bereaved. However, Joseph somehow flourishes in Egypt. 
He rises to a place of prominence within Potiphar's house, the house that he is a servant of. And then eventually he's thrown into prison and goes through all these ordeals, but he's able to interpret dreams. Somehow Pharaoh hears about this. And so he rises to a place of prominence in Egypt and he's able to somehow see through these dreams into the future. There's going to be a famine. He's able to provide for the people of Egypt, actually for people of the whole world because there's a worldwide famine. And Joseph now is the governor of Egypt in a position to provide for people because he has stored up this grain. So there's more to it than that, but that at least gets us up to speed on, uh, on where we are in the story. So we pick up the story in Genesis 42. Let's look at verses 1 to 5. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, there's a famine, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy, uh, came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So key words in this narrative and moving forward, live and not die. Jacob says, let's go down and buy some grain so that we may live and not die. So he sends his sons. He says, you guys are just looking at one another. You've got to do something. He lights a fire under them. He sends them off to Egypt, but he holds back Benjamin. Benjamin, who is now his favorite, he thinks he has lost Joseph. Benjamin is his favorite. So Jacob, once again, shows his favoritism. Now, one of the questions is going to be, how now will these brothers react? Remember how they reacted to the favoritism that was shown to Joseph? They got rid of him. Now there's this favoritism shown to Benjamin. How are these brothers going to react? Well, as of now, they don't have any reaction whatsoever. They don't seem put off by this. They instead go down to Egypt to get grain so that they can live and not die. So there is a famine in the land. They are deprived. What do we do when we are faced with one form or another of deprivation? I don't know how many of you have ever faced uh, real hunger or not. If you have, I haven't. But if you have, I know that's just a, just a desperate thing. But there's all sorts of deprivation that can come into our lives where we have one thing that thing is taken away from us. What do we do when deprivation is thrust upon us? Well, you might take action, and you would be right to take action. In this text, that's what they do. They take action to make sure that they live and they do not die. However, might God have something more in mind for them and for you than mere survival? In the narrative, in this narrative, God has other things in mind. In addition to all of this, He's interested in reconciliation. He uses the famine, in fact, to reunite estranged brothers and put them on the road to reconciliation. So the brothers now go down to Egypt. What are they going to find there? Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him. Uh, with their faces to the ground. Joseph said, uh, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, 
but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them. So here we have the brothers and Joseph reunited, but they don't recognize Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. It's been 20 years. They don't ever expect to see him again. He's changed his appearance. He was a boy when they knew him before. They, they can't recognize him, but Joseph sees who they are. So then we ask the question, well, what is Joseph now going to do? Remember how they treated him before. They treated him roughly. They threw him into a pit. They, threw him, they sold him into slavery. Has he been rehearsing in his mind for 20 years? If I ever see those so-and-sos again, here's what I'm going to do to them. We wonder about that. And the narrative is very coy. It doesn't reveal Joseph's motives and all that. We don't know really at this point what has happened in his heart. However, we did learn that when Joseph had these two children in chapter 41, that he named them in recognition of what God had done for him. He says, God had made me forget all the hardship in my family. And he says, God has made me fruitful in this land of affliction. That is the land of Egypt. So, but, but right now, anyway, he treats them as strangers and he treats them roughly. However, he also remembers his dreams. Now, back in chapter 37, he had these dreams, and these dreams indicated that he was going to rule over his brothers and that his brothers were going to bow down before him. And here, literally, that's happening. His brothers are bowing down before him. And so what is he going to do with these dreams that he's had that now seem to be coming to fulfillment? Well, there's more going on than simply the fulfillment of dreams. These dreams were given to Joseph by God, not entirely and necessarily so that they could be fulfilled, but that God could test Joseph and his brothers through the dreams. That is ultimately God's purpose in these dreams is to test the brothers, to test the men in this family, and to transform them through these dreams. So Joseph was abused by his brothers. Make no mistake, this is abuse. This is emotional abuse. This is physical abuse. They assault him. Okay, what do you do when you're abused in one way or another? And all of us suffer one form of abuse or another. What do you do when that happens? Well, you might question God. You might question why God would allow you to suffer in such a way. You might even rage against God, and you would have biblical precedent for doing so. We just went through the book of Lamentations for our Lent series. You can read the Psalms of Lament. You can see biblical people raging against God and questioning God. When you suffer abuse, you would be well within your rights to be able to, to, to do something like that. However, might God have something more in mind? In the narrative... Joseph is able to say, I've forgotten all the hardship. Joseph is able to say, because of what God has done, God has made me fruitful in the land. Perhaps God could do something with your abuse way more than you can begin to imagine. Well, now what's going to happen? Now what is Joseph going to do? What are the brothers going to do? We pick up the story. Verse 9, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. 
They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We are your servants. We are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. And of course, the one who is no more is the one who is, who is standing before them. They just don't know that. And one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. He accuses them of being spies, of spying out the nakedness of the land, that is the undefended parts, in order to exploit it and to take advantage of it. And what uh, Joseph is doing here is getting more information out of his brothers. He doesn't know everything that's going on, and what he's doing by accusing them of being spies multiple times, he's teasing out this information in order that he can know perhaps what to do with this information. And they say, we are honest men. And indeed, they're telling the truth, but uh, not the whole truth. And uh, they're honest to a certain extent, but then we remember that they weren't exactly honest 20 years ago when they got rid of Joseph and they slaughtered this animal and put the blood of this animal on a coat that belonged to Joseph to make Jacob, their father, believe that... Joseph had been killed. They weren't honest back then. And so we're asking ourselves, what's happened in 20 years? Are they honest now? Are they repentant now? Well, we don't know. And you know what? Joseph doesn't know either. And he wants to find out. And uh, talk about the youngest. The youngest one is back there, back there, back in Canaan. And of course, Joseph knows that that's Benjamin. But are they telling the truth about Benjamin? Benjamin is now the favorite, and Joseph knows what they did with the favorite before. How does he know that, that they are telling the truth about Benjamin? Maybe they've done the same thing to Benjamin or worse. Maybe they've killed him. Joseph doesn't know these things. Are they telling the truth? So he throws them into prison. We're skipping over that part, but let me tell it to you. He throws them into prison. And now what they are doing is they are feeling what he felt because, because of what they did to him, he was in prison. So he throws them all into prison. We pick up the story, verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brother, brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified. So, uh, Joseph unwittingly echoes his father with the words, live and not die. Do this and you will live and you won't die. And Joseph says intriguingly at this point, again, they don't know who he is, I fear God. In other words, you can trust me. Now the question becomes, do they fear God? They didn't show much fear of God 20 years ago in their treatment of Joseph. Do they fear God today? Has something happened to them? Have they changed? Have they been transformed at all? A lot can happen in 20 years. I look out uh, upon some of you, and some of you have been around for yeah, you know, more than 20 years, and you know that a lot can happen in 20 years. What has happened in 20 years? And... Now he says, okay, we're going we're gonna to hold one back 
And the rest of you are going to be able to go, but uh, are you going to come back or you're, are you not? You abandoned me. Are you going to, has anything changed in you so that you're going to come back for the one that you've left? Is that going to happen? Have you changed to that degree? Or are you going to leave this one behind and just go on with your lives the way you did before? Verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and when we did not listen. This is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Oh, man. So now they, they make some connections here. They're going through this current distress. They're connecting it to the distress that they caused Joseph. And they're recognizing God's hand in this, perhaps. And even one of them talks about a divine reckoning. So they seem to be coming to terms with who they are and what they've done, at least to some degree. Verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Okay, so now we're getting a little picture of Joseph here. He... He turns away and he weeps. He's, now we recognize he's been holding it together, seeing his brothers, concealing his identity from them, and he's still not ready to reveal himself to them because he really doesn't know what's going on with them. But we were wondering, is he bent on revenge? But now these tears don't seem to be someone coming from someone who is bent on revenge. They seem to be coming from someone who is warm-hearted toward his brothers. So if the dreams were given to Joseph to test him and his brothers, it looks as if Joseph is passing the test. He's not resentful. He's not bent on revenge. He seems more longing to be reconciled with his brothers. It seems like he is passing the test. But what about the brothers? The test for the brothers continues. Simeon is chosen to stay behind. Now the rest of the brothers are going to go. Now this is really interesting. What does Joseph do? He puts this money in their sacks. He gives them the grain that they bought, but he, he, he orders that the money be returned to their sacks. So what is this going to do? Now once they discover this money in their sacks, and they know if they go back to Egypt, they're going to be taken for thieves. Now that raises the bar, doesn't it? Already it's something to say, hey, we're going to go back to Egypt for our brother, but now we're going to go back to Egypt for our brother, and we're going to be taken for thieves, and who knows what this guy's going to do to us now. This is really a test of character. Are they going to risk all this then to go back for Simeon? So there were these dreams that were given to Joseph and his brothers in order to test them. What do you do with your dreams? 
What do you do with those dreams that come to you in the middle of the night when you're asleep? Or what do you do with those dreams that come to you during the day when you are hoping for a better life? When you're not maybe really super satisfied with where you are right now and you have these dreams for the future. What do you do with your dreams? You might wonder how they will be fulfilled or whether they will be fulfilled and you would be right to do so. However, might God have something more in mind for your dreams than simple fulfillment or non-fulfillment? Might he be doing something in your heart? Might he be testing you? Might he be transforming you? In the narrative, the dreams are a test in order to transform the brothers. You can't begin to imagine what God is going to do with your dreams. So, now the brothers, they're on the road back to Egypt. They've got the grain, and they've got the money in the sacks. They don't know they have this money in the sacks. And they, on, the way, on the way back to Canaan, I should say, then one of them opens the sack and discovers the money. What are they going to do now? Verse 28. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? They invoke the name of God for the first time, since way back when. So it looks like they're seeing God's hand in all of this, and they're worried about what God is going to do. They invoke the name of God. Do they fear God? Has anything happened in 20 years to change them? Is, are the things that Joseph is doing to, him, to them, is that changing them in any way? Are they able to see things a little bit differently? So they return to Canaan and they report back to their father. And we hear this in Genesis 42, beginning at verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Now, now, now remember, so, so, so Joseph's deal was, you've got to go back to Canaan, and you've got to bring Benjamin back. So that's the deal, right? In order, to get more, in order to get Simeon, in order to get more money, you've got to bring Benjamin back. And now they come back, and they open their sacks, and there's all this money. And, you know, are they honest men? And Jacob begins to question that. They look guilty as sin. It looks like they've returned, they've returned with the grain, but they also return with the money. It looks like they've stolen the grain. So Jacob questions their integrity, and there's no way that he is going to part with Benjamin now. Now, at the end of the chapter, Reuben tries to break the stalemate, and he offers this ridiculous suggestion that, hey, I'll, I'll go, I'll take Benjamin, and if I don't come back with Benjamin, you can kill my two sons. Well, that, that just makes no sense at all to Jacob. He rejects that proposal out of hand. So what we have at the end of Genesis 42 is this stalemate. We have Joseph, his heels are dug in back in Egypt. There's no way that he's going to give them any more grain. There's no way he's going to let, them, let Simeon go unless Benjamin comes back. And then you've got Jacob and Canaan. 
who needs to let go of, of uh, Benjamin. And there is no way that he's going to let go of Benjamin. So, there, so where are we now in this story, in this story of redemption? We are stuck. And we ask ourselves at the end of 42, is there any way that this story can move forward? And the Genesis 42 leaves us hanging. And so we'll come back next week and pick up the story with Genesis 43. So what do you do when you suffer loss? This is what happened to Jacob, right? He suffered loss. He lost Joseph, and then it looks like he's lost Simeon. And it's, it's like one loss after another, right? And he is bereaved. And he says, all this has come against me. You might say something like that when you suffer loss or a series of losses. And oftentimes it's not just one loss, it's one loss after another, after another. And you might say, all this has come against me. However, might God have something else in mind? Might God have something more for you in your losses? And one of the things you have to learn how to deal with in life is loss. Even if it's the great things that happen to you and you move on to this next season, these great things are not there anymore. You have to deal with that. And as I tell, her to the, tell the seniors in my seniors Bible study all the time, the more you live, the more you lose. But can you see that the Lord might be doing something in the loss? Is God doing something more? In the narrative here, God is teaching Jacob to let go, to loosen his grip on that which he is holding onto so tightly and to trust him and to deepen his faith. God can do a lot with what you lose, more than what you can imagine. All right, what do we make of this story? Let me tell you a story. I left California in 1990, and I thought I would never be back. Three years I came back, and I came back for what I thought was just a temporary basis to work on a particular relationship. And then I came back, 1993, and I was going to leave, and I was working on this relationship, and it wasn't working out. However, while I was working on the relationship, there was this particular church that was looking for a pastor. Things, by the way, worked out with that particular church. Things didn't work out with the relationship, but things worked out with the church. And that church, of course, is this church. 30, uh, 27 years later, I am still at this church, that church, which is this church. And uh, the way I, I think of it, looking at Looking back at it, I came for one purpose, I stayed for another. I came for a relationship, I stayed for a church. The way I look at it is, God pulled the old bait and switch. Has that ever happened to you? You do something for one reason, you think God is leading you to do this for one reason, and that reason falls apart, but this other reason grows. And of course, in 27 years, so many awesome things have happened for me, and I hope a few things for you as well. I've been a pastor at the church for 27 years. I met my wife here. We have two beautiful daughters, one of whom we are about to send off to college. Bait and switch. What a switch. You see, 
God uses, God uses everything for something. Take a look at this story. Well, I should say this. Live hopefully. This story wants us to live hopefully. Bad things happen. A few good things happen. But God is using everything. God is drawing everything into His glorious purposes. God uses everything for something. Again, consider the story. What does He use in the story? He uses famine, abuse, dreams, and loss. Famine, abuse, dreams, and loss. And He uses all of those things for something. The whole purpose of the famine from Jacob's perspective is we got to survive that we may live and not die. But God has more than mere survival in mind for Jacob and his sons. He has so many things in mind for them. Most importantly, what he is doing in Genesis 42 is moving the story of Abraham's family forward through countless twists and turns, stops and starts, false finishes, dead ends, through hundreds of years, hundreds of years of such things, until Abraham's family gets to the point where it gives birth to a child. And that child grows up to say these immortal words in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, will live. If you believe in me, you will never die. Live and not die. More than mere survival is at stake here, friends. It is eternal life that is at stake. That's what's at stake back here in Genesis 42 as God is moving the story forward so that today we may live and not die, live eternally. And yes, we will die, of course, but death becomes irrelevant. That's what Jesus does to death. He makes it irrelevant. More than mere survival is at stake. How about today? You know that we're Abraham's family? According to the New Testament, everyone who believes in Christ is a child of Abraham. We are Abraham's family. What is God doing today with us, with Abraham's family? He is moving the story forward through constant and countless twists and turns, stops and starts, dead ends, false finishes, who knows how many famines, who knows how many pandemics until we get to the day that Jesus Christ comes back and we hear these words coming from the throne of God, behold, I am making all things new. Who knows how God is using the pandemic even now to get us to that day. God uses everything for something. Therefore, today, live hopefully.